Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host Simon. This one, The Angel of Death, that's a cracker of a title, Chris. This episode written by Chris, thank you. Kristen Gilbert, serial killer nurse. Oh god, this is going to be like another Harold Shipman one. Whereas like, medical people, if you combine serial killers with like, position of trust, it's going to go, they're going to be really good ser- <laughs> Let me rephrase that. They're going to be really successful serial killers. I was going to say good serial killers, which is obviously- an insane thing to say. Anyway, the format of this show, if you're new here, is that I've never read this before. Chris has written it for me. I'm going to read it. We're going to explore it together. This is very, very long, Chris. I'm not sure how long this episode is going to come out being, but I can see how small that little scrolly thing on the right side of my uh, little PDF here is. Henry Huden was 19 years old when he joined the United States Air Force. His father had been in the Air Force for 23 years fighting against Rommel in World War II. Henry wanted to serve his country, following his father's footsteps. He went to basic, then technical training, before qualifying as an assistant physical therapist and eventually being posted to RAF Lakenheath, north of London. Wait. Oh, okay. Um, I get it. So he's in the United States Air Force, and he's obviously been, I assume, sent over to Britain, because the RAF is the Royal Air Force, so it'd be a bit weird. But I guess he's just been sent there to do some stuff or something like that. I know my, uh, my cousin is American, and he was in the Air Force, and he was in the UK, and uh, most of his family's in the UK, um, because my aunt and my step-aunt, she went to america when she was like in her 20s and so her whole family's out there and uh but he was um stationed he was in the air force and he was stationed to some like air force base in the uk for like a year or two i think it was a long time so people in the air force get sent to different places i guess that's kind of the thing about the military and everybody knows this simon why are you expanding on this it's here that at a pizza place henry was asked by a nearby officer to de-escalate a fight which had just broken out we don't know the exact circumstances but i do know that australian forces are required to intervene in incidents involving australian service personnel even during off hours we're not allowed to merely stand witness or worse just wander off oh yeah sorry chris is uh chris the writer of this piece is australian just because there weren't enough countries involved in this confusion already. <laughs> Either way, young Henry did as he was asked. For his pains, he was bottled across the back of the head, falling face-first onto the concrete floor. He suffered a detached retina and traumatic injury to the frontal lobes, and he was invalidated back home. Oh my god, good lord. That is a proper fight. <laughs> that officer was like, yo, 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 airman. <laughs> Go deal with that. They call them airmen, right? I know this because of Stargate. Go deal with that fight. I'm eating my pizza. As a veteran, he was entitled to financial assistance and medical care, and somewhat surprisingly, seems to have actually received it. He was returned to his hometown in Massachusetts, where he eventually rented a small apartment, being cared for by his mother and sister as needed. Henry's sister, Christine, described her brother as high-energy, boisterous, and likable before the brain injury. Afterwards, though, she said, quote, I was talking to a different person. He was morose, quiet, and sometimes violent and aggressive. He heard voices and was constantly terrified. Henry was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and sent to a Veterans Affairs Medical Center. Most folks just call it the VA in order to get his medications adjusted and inpatient treatment process, uh, which could take weeks or months. This would happen every eight or nine months, and Henry would frequently skip out on his inpatient time. So his sister Christine or their mother Julia would have to find him and bring him back. The brain injuries are scary. 
It's like you can get knocked really badly in the head and it's like, boom, now you have a different personality. But this is like the nightmare nurse or whatever. So he's not, to, like normally I'd be like, oh, he's our serial killer today. This guy was a normal dude. He got in a fight and he became a murderer, but it's not him. Wait, am I just being super sexist? Oh my God, I'm being super. No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> I was like, it can't be him. He's, it's a nurse and nurses are always women. But no, I have it as a woman in my mind, not because I'm a sexist, but because it says Kristen Gilbert right there in the title. And that is a girl. Girl's name. <laughs> it's December the 7th, 1995, and Henry skipped out on another inpatient stretch at the Leeds VA in Northampton, Massachusetts. He's quite ill with the flu, however, and starting to regret his decisions. He calls both his mother, Julia, and his sister, Christine, asking them to bring him back the next day. It's Julia who goes. She tells her son to say he's been drinking and taking pills. Flu was ravaging the small town, and she was worried he'd not be able to get in for treatment. Henry duly complied, so instead of the psych ward, the doctor assigns Henry to Ward C, a 26-bed acute care facility. Henry suddenly loses his mind, frantically resisting and citing staff and patient claims that people in Ward C are being killed for no reason. That yeah, he was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic, right? That seems to fit. This fits common delusional frameworks for Henry's type of mental illness. There we go. So Julia doesn't think anything of it. They put Henry's effects into a bag, which she makes them put a name tag on so he doesn't lose anything. They call an orderly Henry's known for years, a kind man called Rich, who succeeds in calming him down. Staff say Julia should just leave and they'll take care of her son. As she goes, Henry, weeping, says to his mother, Mum, I don't want to die. Please don't leave me here. Late that same night, Julia Hudson got a call from a doctor at the VA saying that her son is gone. Exasperated, she offers to go back out to his apartment to try and persuade him to return. No, you don't understand, Mrs. Hudson, the doctor said. He's gone as in he's dead. D-E-A-D. <laughs> Holy shit, the doctor didn't say that, did he? It's like, no, 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 he's dead. Like, do you, do you not understand? D-E-A-D? Dead. <laughs> Holy shit. Doc, which strikes me as strangely insensitive. Yeah, no shit. But that's how the family tell it, and I don't doubt them. Anyway, they inform Julia that Henry has died as of a series of cardiac arrests. Christine says her mother did nothing else for the rest of the night but cry. Christine goes out to the hospital to identify her brother's body. While they're talking, Christine suddenly demands an autopsy, surprising everyone, including herself. I just heard myself saying it, she told a TV documentary team. The hospital is unwilling, saying there's no requirements, but Christine insists, arguing that multiple cardiac arrests are not a typical symptom of influenza and that she has a right to know the cause of death. Her brother's fears were probably in her mind as well, but when the autopsy results came through, uh, there was no conclusive evidence of foul play or malpractice. What is found, though, is that the last attack was so severe that part of his heart had exploded through his chest cavity. It, I, I, that is something I didn't even know was possible. That's some, like, alien this is strange for a strong and healthy 35-year-old male, but not necessarily unprecedented. So the Huden family grieve and make funeral arrangements, and the world, serenely and indifferently, spins ever onward. The hospital. The Leeds VA is a complex of red brick colonial buildings at the top of Bear Hill in Northampton in western Massachusetts. Their mission statement printed on a sign out front is to care for those who shall have borne battle. Back in the 19th century, it was a stagecoach tavern, and by 1924, after President Harding ordered the land to be cleared, it became the Department of Veterans Affairs' first ever psychiatric facility, primarily focused on mental health care to this day. The hospital would also take overflow patients from other facilities and had a variety of intensive care and other facilities that we'd associate 
with an ordinary hospital. I know a great many Americans have direct or indirect contact with the VA system, but for those who don't, it's worth saying a little bit about them. My understanding, and again, it's like for, it's just from movies. And I feel like it used to come up in the X-Files a lot because they'd often do it like there were episodes where they'd have like veterans and stuff and they'd be going to the VA. I'm not sure why it was in like, I feel like I know this from the X-Files, but it's like basically a free healthcare system, right? For veterans. Like if you served in the military, you get some like cool benefits, cool benefits, like benefits that you should obviously get because you've been injured in a war that you were paid to fight in. Um, and you get healthcare afterwards. But I get the feeling it's, I get the feeling it's not very good. They are primarily, in most cases, tranquil places. Many of their patients are pretty old and seriously ill, and staff tend to have strong relationships with their regulars, typically knowing them well and providing the best standard of care they can. Well, this is nice. The patient profile has changed somewhat since Gulf War II and Afghanistan, but I think for the most part this characterization is broadly accurate. The flip side of this, of course, is money. Public health in the US, in general, has been chronically underfunded for decades, and veteran care is a recurrent national scandal, with veterans having to fill in reams of paperwork and go through soul-destroying bureaucratic processes to prove their eligibility. Oh my god, this is such I hate all of this stuff. The the Czech version, where I live, version of this, is uh, customs. It's like any time I get a package from a sponsor, it is a nightmare. It's like every single time. It's like, what is this? It's a pair of shoes. It's like a pair of shoes worth like 150 bucks or whatever. And it's like, it's such a hassle. They're always like, okay, well, do you have an invoice? And it's like, no, I don't have an invoice. It's sent to me for free. And they're like, well, we need an invoice. So it's always like going to the company. It's like, hi, I need an invoice. And they're like, well, we can't give you an invoice. We gave it to you for free. We can give you an invoice that says zero. And it's like, I'll take it. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. It is the bane of my existence. And it's like, can't I just, look, I'll pay you. Just whatever the duty is, whatever it is, just tell me how much it is and I'll pay it. Just please don't make me fill out all the paperwork. Please. No, it's like eight pages and it's all in check and it's so hard. Oh, God. Sorry, I'll stop complaining because I realize like my complaining about customs sounds a little bit out of touch when I'm talking about people who've been injured in a war not being able to get the health care that they obviously deserve. That was that, that my little rant. I didn't realize it was surprisingly insensitive. I, insensitive. I apologize for that. Recent reforms have been made in Australia and the U.S. The Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide and the PACT Act, respectively, which have attempted to reduce some of the red tape associated with qualifying for care. But in general, VAs in the U.S. tend to be understaffed, unevenly equipped, and heavily reliant on private philanthropy. Look, if you can't afford to take care of the people who are getting injured in your wars, you shouldn't be funding you shouldn't be sending them to war in the first place. If you get shot in a war, or whatever, or get PTSD, and they can't afford to take care of you, that is like, I'm trying to think of a good example, but it's like a company offering a lifetime warranty on a product that they can't then honor because they don't have enough money to offer, you know, like, I don't know, you buy pans, like fancy pans often come with like a lifetime warranty. But then if I write to Le Creusot, and I'm like, bro, this pan, I don't know if Le Creusot is one of the ones that do it, but like fancy pans, right? And then they're like, no, we can't, we can't do that. That, that's really shit. You wouldn't accept that from a private company, and honestly, you shouldn't accept it from your government. That's some real bullshit right there. This is important for what follows, as I can predict quite a few what the f**k's coming from, Simon, and our excellent audience. Already. We're already getting those. The reality of the way in which these systems are run, held together by staff routinely going above and beyond, and private organizations and citizens reaching into their pockets or volunteering or both, means that we have to cut the good people running these places a bit of slack. Anyway, yeah, oh my god. I don't blame the people running these places. They're doing probably the like you don't go into like nursing or medicine. Maybe you do in America because the money's quite good for doctors, isn't it? But generally, I don't think people go into that for the money as a general rule. So it's I don't think it's like 
they're not the ones to blame in a situation like this. It's shitty government allocation of money. It's just like fighting wars that you can't really afford to fight, or you're not willing to pay up afterwards to take care of your veterans, which is it's kind of rough, isn't it? Anyway, the Leeds VA was just such a place, and situated in the kind of idyllic surroundings only Massachusetts seems able to provide. All right. <laughs> All right, Chris. I love Massachusetts. With an added layer of serenity baked into the design of the generous grounds owing to its function as a psychiatric hospital. In July of 1995, Stanley Yagodowski, a truck driver and Korean war vet, was admitted to the ICU at Ward C for post-operative bowel obstructions. It had his operation at another facility, which didn't have the aftercare beds at the time, so off to Leeds VA he went. He was covering well, though, and the doctor had recommended he be shifted to a nursing home the following day. The shift changed at 4 p.m so the single-duty nurse changed out as well. By 8.43, two licensed practical nurses, or LPNs, had paid him a visit and confirmed the doctor's prognosis. Stanley was on the mend. Let me guess, Stanley is going to die in suspicious circumstances, and he is going to have been murdered by somebody. LPNs, by the way, are degree-qualified nurses who provide basic medical care. Registered nurses, RNs, who provide more dynamic care, frequently supervise them. Anyway, one of the LPNs saw the nurse duty, an RN, go into Stanley's room with a syringe and swabs, ostensibly to flush his IV line with saline to remove a blockage. This might have struck them as strange, as all his prescribed medications were oral tablets or it might not, as they wouldn't necessarily have known everything he was prescribed. He could also just be on an IV to not receive medication. I remember when I went in for hospital. I went into hospital last year for an operation after breaking a bone, and they were like, "You can't drink anything," and your operations at like three o'clock in the. It was like it ended up being like six p.m. And I was like, I'm super thirsty. And they're like, well, we'll have to give you, well, we'll give you an IV then <laughs> because you can't have anything in your stomach. And I'm like, I just want a glass of water. A little while later, the other nurse heard Stanley yell, "Ow, it hurts." You're killing me, oh, which made her turn towards the door oh, as she saw the duty nurse leaving. Within minutes, the hospital was calling a code blue, critical life-threatening emergency, and shortly after that, Stanley Jagodowski was dead of cardiac arrest. Now, this sequence of events looks pretty damning, and it's worth wondering why those two LPNs didn't go straight to someone in authority and call out the duty nurse as a murderer, but there are a few factors mitigating against this. Um, yeah, this is famous in medicine. There's a brilliant book called Black Box Thinking. By is it David Said? Something like this? Matthew? Matthew Said, I think. That's a bingo. Unless I'm completely misremembering. And it talks about why errors in medicine aren't reported that much. And it's fascinating. It's a great read. Thoroughly recommended. First, there's authority, and that's totally one of the things he talks about in that book. Those two LPNs, as I said, might not have been across every aspect of Stanley's treatment, and they'd have little reason to question what the RM was doing. There was also the fact that Stanley had a history of heart trouble, so his dying of a cardiac arrest after an operation just wasn't that suspicious. On top of all that, this is a VA hospital. I know I describe them as mostly tranquil places, but that's a relative measure. In a primarily psychiatric hospital with seriously injured, aging, and unwell veterans, hearing patients yell out weird or disturbing stuff isn't actually that unusual. Another thing about VA hospitals is that people die in them, lots of people, owing to the patient profile. And in any case, the nurse in question was Kristen Gilbert, described in every available source, including court documents, as pretty and popular, and well-known throughout the hospital as being one of its very best operators, a highly intelligent, well-liked, and highly motivated staff member on whom they would frequently rely in times of trouble. Yes, but highly intelligent, well-liked, highly motivated, 
pretty, popular are all things that also serial killers can have. This isn't to say the hospital was lethargical negligence in its duty. Nurse Kathy Ricks, a longtime staff member and a similarly popular and well-respected medical professional, had been noticing some disturbing trends over the past few years. Firstly, there were the issues with epinephrine. Epinephrine is also commonly referred to as adrenaline. It's either produced artificially or as a hormone by the body's adrenal glands. I believe epinephrine is the artificial version and adrenaline is the hormonally produced version. Right? I think that's how that works. When artificially synthesized, it's a colorless, odorless liquid. For all I know, it's the same when your kidneys make it, but I can't actually be sure of that as it's bloody hard to tell when you're watching a video of all that red and purple bobbly stuff spurting fluids into a living body. Lovely. Anyway, epinephrine is used to treat a variety of heart problems and muscle spasms as well as asthma. Given that its primary side effect is a radical increase in heart rate, it's a carefully controlled substance as giving it to a healthy patient could cause death. Kathy Ricks was concerned about the rising death rates on her ward, especially from cardiac arrest, and started doing an audit of various aspects of operations on her own time. She discovered some pretty disturbing stuff, not least of which was that out of 135 doses of epinephrine administered, 88 couldn't be accounted for. What? That is mad. You need to be keeping track of your drugs in your hospital. Is that... This is what that black box thinking book talks about. It's all of this sort of shit that just doesn't seem to happen in medicine, and he compares it to the airline industry, famously, and how everything there is tracked and taken care of and reported, and there are systems. And in medicine, it's just like, nah, you just go check out some epinephrine if you're a nurse or a doctor. No worries. It's mine. And it's just not tracked which is insanity. We have the technology to do this. Usually when a drug's administered, you'd expect there to be a matching prescription. Now normally, you'd expect small discrepancies, especially in busy ICUs with drugs administered or checked out in the heat of a moment and possibly not properly recorded owing to the natural flow of adrenaline in the staff involved. Um, I'm sorry, but I just don't find that acceptable. I understand that these are emergency situations and that, okay, so there's a small discrepancy because someone urgently needs adrenaline, but we have the technology to be able to track that and get that to work. And there shouldn't be discrepancies in a hospital. And if there are, we should be fully aware of them. And that shouldn't be happening in the 21st century. I just don't think that's acceptable. You need to do better medicine. And also, like, um, this sort of thing and drugs being sent to the wrong people and given to the wrong people is why so many people who shouldn't have died in hospital die in hospital it's, isn't it it's like one of the biggest causes of death uh, is just like mal, uh, not malpractice i think that's a specific legal term but just like people dying in hospital from mistakes like medical mistakes it's crazy additionally while none of the sources mentioned this i happen to know that certain drugs epinephrine among them are popular with nurses and doctors alike especially those working back-to-back -back shifts oh my god they're using adrenaline recreationally i had no idea i'm not suggesting that medical professionals in general are thieving drug addicts no way that wouldn't just be a dick move it'd also be untrue i'm pretty sure that there's plenty of doctors who uh, and nurses who are drug addicts you know being around all those drugs that they can probably steal because no one seems to keep track of it i watched that tv show house <laughs> he was on all sorts of drugs he loved it but doctors and i know that's a tv show but i mean i'm sure this happens in real life but doctors and nurses i know personally tell me that when you're literally dropping with fatigue and have an expert knowledge of pharmacology it's not unheard of to unofficially prescribe yourself something small just to get through a shift i don't think you can prescribe yourself anything doctors can't prescribe themselves drugs you'd have to ask your mate to prescribe you something right I think that changed because i think as a kid i remember my d dad would be able to prescribe us stuff if we needed it or whatever and i don't think he could do that 
by the end of his career. I think they'd changed that rule because he <laughs> has obvious conflict of interest. But the sheer scale of the epinephrine stock anomalies combines with the alarming... I, my dad's a doctor. Or was a doctor. I don't know if I mentioned that. That's probably, that's why you could, obviously. Combines with the alarming increase in deaths from cardiac arrest, had her antennae up. We'll have a chat about statistics later. I'm sure you're all dead keen for the fascinating discussion to start. I kind of am. Is it sad that I'm like, I want to hear more about that? But the thing is, the mortality rates in hospitals do trend up and down, so Kathy wasn't that initially worried. Yeah, but what about all the missing epinephrine? It's a lot. Someone's got a problem. But as the expected downward trend didn't seem to be surfacing for an improbably long time, Kathy eventually took two of her colleagues, John Walt and Rene Walsh, into her confidence, and they all quietly began investigating the anomalies together. From the very outset, their intention was to take anything concrete they found to the authorities. These three, as well as the VA hospital itself, have come in for some criticism for being slow to do this, but from my research, I don't think it's warranted. I believe, along with the chief investigators of this case, that they blew the whistle in a timely and effective manner. As chill as a VA hospital might be for the patients, it's still a fraught environment for the staff, and I completely understand their deliberate and careful approach. If they jumped at every misgiving that they'd had, they'd basically have to camp at the cop station every night. Yeah, this seems, to be fair, this seems very diligent and thoughtful. And didn't we mention she was doing it on her, own, on her own time? So this isn't something that was set up in the hospital for her to do. This is just an initiative that that, that she took. Easy on the criticism, folks. Come on. And yes, it is life and death we're talking about here, but I say again, this is a hospital. Pretty well all their major decisions are life and death. Life and death is the very essence of their everyday existence, which, while this doesn't make these issues less urgent, it sure seems like it would make them stand out less. But that's just my opinion. So let's lay out the case and see what everybody thinks. Just before we continue with today's episode of the podcast, this episode is brought to you by the Mr. Borland Podcast, a teen solo hiker who was terrorized for days by unknown figures dressed in white, two cops who quit their job at a local theater because of unexplained encounters with an alleged demon, an isolated forest in Canada where people keep turning up headless. These are just some of the strange, dark, and mysterious stories you'll hear each week on the Mr. Borland Podcast. In each episode, Mr. Borland shares real-life haunting accounts like the case of Haley's Agar, who disappeared from a hiking trail for 51 hours. When Search and Rescue finally found her and asked how she survived, she simply said a friend helped her. She described this friend as four years old, black hair, brown eyes. His friend was initially dismissed until they realized a girl had gone missing on that exact spot 23 years earlier and was never found. She was four years old, had black hair, and wait for it, brown eyes. So look, Amazon Prime members, you can listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, the Mr. Ballin podcast, Strange, Dark and Mysterious Stories, in the Amazon Music app. You can download the app today. And now back to today's episode. The Life and Crimes of Christine Gilbert Unlike many others I've written for Cash Crim, sources for this piece have been refreshingly simple to find. The Boston Globe, who famously blew the lid off Boston and the world's Catholic Church child abuse scandal, did fantastic investigative work after the story broke, and were also able to secure the cooperation of many of the key witnesses and investigators. Isn't that what that was that post movie about that? That was crazy. On top of this, while some of the record is sealed as Kristen has living children, none of the important facts are obscured. Special acknowledgement needs to go to Thomas Farahar of The Globe, whose archived packages on the story were invaluable. Also, Radford University's Department of Psychology compiled a painstaking profile and timeline, which were extremely useful in untangling the frankly lazy and chaotic minor sources out there in internet lands. Beyond that, it's the usual round of legal briefs 
trial and appeal documents and high-quality journalism, which formed the basis for much of what follows. I also have to thank several colleagues of mine who helped me with some of the concepts around statistical analysis, the rules around circumstantial evidence in the United States federal justice system, and the general pattern of life in and around the U.S. Veteran Affairs Department and its facilities. And Chris, respect. Like, I so enjoy getting to read well-researched pieces like this that go above and beyond just like I found it on this website called johnsblog.com. It's really nice that you do this, and uh, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Kristen Gilbert was born Kristen Heather Strickland on 13th of November 1967 in Fall River, Massachusetts. Isn't Strickland Strickland from? Uh, oh, is it? Isn't he the? He is the principal in um, which back? To, it's one of the Back to the Future movies, right? At first glance, her childhood seems unremarkable, but there are indications of the adult that she'd grow up to be. Also, if you run those last two sentences through a plagiarism detector, you're likely to get a big red alarm going off, as pretty much every source says exactly the same thing about her in almost exactly the same way. In the early 80s, the family moved to Groton, Massachusetts, about 90 minutes' drive away. Kristen's father was an electronics engineer, and her mother a homemaker and part-time teacher. They lived in a nice house in the suburbs across from their friends, the more family whose kids Kristen used to babysit. Kristen was in the maths club and went to prom with the brightest kid in school. She breezed through honors class and graduated high school two years early in 1984 at the age of 16. Such is the laundry list of facts from her childhood which frequently get bandied about. Basically, she was a high performer. When the Globe talked to her old neighbors, the Moors, they described a neighborhood spat of some kind, which they wouldn't elaborate on. Shortly after this, the Strickland family moved house. I wasn't able to find out for sure what the dispute was about, though, of course, many true crime folks and whatnot are convinced it was Kristen doing something dark and appalling. Yeah, it's the sort of thing I'd imagine where it's like she was found torturing their dog, and you're like, oh, good lord. But we don't know, I guess. None of this is anything but speculation, though, and since we at Cash Crim are better than that, I'm just going to say that it's unknown at this time. Alberta Moore would tell The Globe that Kristen lied a lot, saying she had a, quote, blank look in her eyes like she was making stuff up as she went along. She apparently went around telling people she was related to Lizzie Borden, an infamous 19th century figure accused but not convicted of the axe murders of her father and stepmother, as I'm sure you already know from our episode about her. Yeah, just recorded that recently. One of Kristen's friends described how she had stolen one of her tops and then worn it in front of her, claiming that she just happened to own the same one. The same friend recalled Kristen's favorite character from General Hospital, a soap they all love to watch, was basically one of the villains, a cruel and conniving destroyer. Yeah, but I don't know. There's definitely like TV shows I watch and you're like, yeah, the villain's the best. Because you want to be an edgy teenager. <laughs> I suppose this all is supposed to explain how she went on to murder a bunch of people, but I do wonder about the benefits of hindsight in a lot of these earlier memories. Yeah, I, I don't know. I used to lo I love small, uh, Smallville, Superman, all of that shit. And Lex Luthor was always like, he's just so cool. Yeah, he's the bad guy, but he's like cool and calculating. And I was always like, Lex Luthor legends uh but i didn't turn out to be a serial killer <laughs> just wanted to be edgy as a teenager as far as we know of course temporality is a genuine factor in a tale like this and what comes later does stitch together quite neatly with this admittedly thin collection of character assassination anecdotes after high school kristen enrolled in bridgewater state college and majored in pre-med it seems that during this time she developed a pattern of emotional and physical abuse inflicted on a series of boyfriends boyfriends from this period reported being spat at attacked with car keys and fingernails and having their cars vandalized <laughs> Holy shit. 
<laughs> they're like, nice knowing you. <laughs> Later. One man in particular says Kristen attempted to manipulate him by falsely claiming that she had attempted suicide by eating glass. A mistake seems to have been making this claim in writing, which led Bridgewater to order her to undergo psychiatric assessment, which she claims to have avoided by transferring, but more on that in a moment. She also, according to her father, developed a habit of telling people that her mother was an abusive alcoholic who beat her, which she wasn't. It seems she was always interested in developing a fantasy persona of herself, a sort of personal origin myth which would simultaneously set her apart from and gain her entry to groups of peers. Now, this is pretty common among a bunch of different types of people, normal and abnormal, but it seems Kristen did it to a pathological extent. In the summer of 1986, she met a man named Glenn Gilbert on Hampton Beach and began a relationship with him. The next year, age 20, she transferred to Wachusett Community College and then to Greenfield Community College in order to be closer to Glenn. Presumably, this significant life change was made more convenient by the transfer away from a college that wanted to put her mental health status in the spotlight. At hazards to any future career in medicine is it i mean surely if you've been mentally ill in the past and you know you're going under treatment and stuff and or you've been fixed um that shouldn't limit your entry into a career in medicine should it is that true Incidentally, when I read the words Greenfield Community College, I got excited thinking that it was the college in that show Community. Now that's green, that's something else. Um, that's a funny show. Oh god, what is it? But then I remembered it was Greendale. There you go. Not Greenfield. My favorite character in that show was the Dean of City College. Twelve smiles maniacally, of course he was. Around that time, yeah, but he's like a bad guy, but he's not like a cool bad guy. <laughs> Around this time, 1987 to be precise, we get the first of the more serious clues, apart from domestic abuse, that something might be wrong with young Kristen. In this year, she took a job as a home health aide with the Visiting Nurses Association of Franklin County. Home health aides basically visit homes and provide basic care to disabled or other vulnerable folk, and it seems that she took a dislike to one of her charges, a mentally disabled boy, and deliberately scalded over 60% of his body with hot water. Holy sh- that's what I said. I mean, that's fed up. You gotta go to prison for that. That's mental. She claims he'd been burnt by a hot bath, but apparently the nature of his injuries wasn't consistent with this. Details are sketchy as charges were never laid. Why not? But the story is well attested by several credible sources. Why or why are there no charges against this? That's insane. You've burnt 60% of a disabled boy's body. That's crazy. The next year, Kristen eloped with Glenn Gilbert. They bounced around a couple of homes before buying a ranch house together in a nice part of Northampton. A ranch house is an imitation of the kind of house you'd find on a well-heeled ranch, only situated in the suburbs. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, okay. I get it, but okay. If you just like that style, you want to be outside, you're like, yeehaw, I'm going to go tend my horses. And then you're like, oh, it's, there's, there's just other ranch houses around me. Weird, but okay. They are apparently much sought after and a symbol of moderate prosperity. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, yes, my dream, seeking out symbols of moderate prosperity. <laughs> but I've only seen them in movies parodying American suburbia, so I can't really speak to that, but I'm sure they're very nice. <laughs> and moderate prosperity was to be the new family's bracket. Kristen had graduated at the age of 21 with a diploma, and I'm not saying, look, look, I'm not trying to be snobby here or whatever. I'm just saying, like, it's. I'm, it's, I'm trying not to make a statement that moderate um, prosperity is something that people don't want because moderate prosperity is nice. Uh, what I'm trying to say is it's like it's a weird thing to like aspire 
Is it? I guess it's not. I'm just being a dick. Let's just move on. I'm just trying to fix it. Christina graduated at the age of 21 with a diploma in nursing at the end of 1988, and by March of 1989, she was employed as a nurse at the Leeds VA, where she was to work for seven years, earning $40,000 a year as a senior RN. This, combined with her husband's income from his work at an optical lens firm, meant that the couple were pretty comfortably off. By 1991, they'd given birth to their first son, and in 1993, on Kristen's birthday, the couple's second son was born. Things, as they say, were looking up. The Talented Kristen Gilbert Kristen Gilbert established herself as one of the good ones very quickly in her nursing career. She was noted for her ability to take charge of a situation, for the air of calm she was able to bring to her duties, patients, and the hospital, and for her quick intelligence and high competence. Code blue situations, or codes, happen reasonably frequently in a hospital like this, and she was always one of the preferred nurses to be on hand for an emergency response team. She didn't neglect the social aspects of hospital life either. Nursing is often termed one of the generous professions. I've never heard that term before, in that it requires a lot from its practitioners both professionally and personally. Teaching is similar, military service as well, law enforcement, YouTubing. <laughs> I added that one in. <laughs> this is not a generous profession. Um, I literally don't see anyone else. I just sit in my office all day and record and read stories, which I kind of like doing. It's kind of like, I, I would describe it as one of the selfish professions, and it's not really even a profession at all. It's more like, what's not a profession? Like, professions are like architects and doctors and nurses and shit. What's, what's it like a trade? It's more, it's definitely more like, or like a, not an art, that sounds well too, way too pretentious, but like acting, stuff like that. The uniqueness of the experience creates a kind of camaraderie of the cognoscenti. That is a brand new word to me there, Chris. Okay. Basically, if you're a nurse, a teacher, a soldier, or a cop, only others in your same profession really understand completely what your life is like, the way your job changes, the way you see the world, and the way the world both sees and fails to see the reality of you. However, I do feel that's quite true for the old YouTube world. Unless you're in it, it's quite hard to, like, understand... Not the difficulties of it, because it's not that difficult. But there's, like, it's, it's a bit stressful sometimes. It's a bit weird. It's a bit uncomfortable at points. And yeah, like when I get together with other people who do it, you're like, oh man, this is, how about that, right? And people are like, dude. <laughs> this means some effort is required to create cohesive and tight-knit teams as much for mutual survival as for support. So those hollow office rituals like Secret Santa or Monthly Social Club can actually take on a greatly enhanced meaning in a job like nursing. In Kristen's case, she jumped in with both feet. She was instrumental in organizing the Secret Santa as well as starting a Sunshine Club, this being a club which would ensure flowers got sent to families in the cases of births, deaths, birthdays, and so on. She frequently organized drives around Christmas time to send presents to needy families, as was a fixture at post-shift drinks at the nearby VFW. A VFW is like an RSL. Wait, the only thing I know RSL is Raid Shadow Legends! Um, or a Legion Club. I have no idea what any of these things are. It stands for Veterans of Foreign Wars and is a sort of social hub for veterans and their families, oh, thank you, that makes more sense, whose most visible public manifestation is the bar, restaurant type venues that they run. There's a strange incident somewhere in this period, between 1991 and 1993, which not too many of the sources have seemed to pick up on. It seems that sometime after the birth of her first child, Kristen claimed to have received a bomb threat. 
The ward was evacuated and searched by police who came up empty. After the cops had finished searching, Kristen claims to have found a strange-looking box. I haven't been able to determine anything beyond these basic facts, and I'm not willing to speculate, but it's worth remembering this for later. The single incident aside, at this early stage in her career, it seems staff and patients alike all thought of Kristen in glowing terms. The other thing everyone comments on is that Kristen was very attractive. I don't see it myself, but apparently James Peralt, a Persian Gulf War veteran and newly hired hospital policeman, really did. And I'm not going to look her up and judge her attractiveness because that would be a bit weird. Just after the birth of her second child, Kristen's marriage to Glenn hit a trouble patch. It was about the same time that James Perrault joined the 11-member hospital police force. These hospital police aren't actual sworn police officers, but they perform many of the same functions within the hospital precinct. They're sort of somewhere between a security guard and a cop. Perrault was a veteran of the 1991 Persian Gulf War and had previously worked as a department store security guard. The hospital police job was better paid and also the next stage on his way to becoming a fully-fledged police officer. When Kristen first started work at the hospital, she was on the overnight shift, but by 1990 had moved to the evening, working from 4 to midnight. Perrault's shifts were from 3 to 11, so their shifts overlapped quite a bit. Pretty soon, Perrault started flirting with Kristen, apparently receiving encouragement as well as hints that Kristen's marriage was in trouble. Whether it was in trouble because Kristen had found a new prospect or because of the normal wear and tear on relationships, I guess we'll never know. In any case, they started meeting up at the VFW after work along with their other colleagues and pretty soon progressed from highly personal email exchanges to a full-blown extramarital affair. Wait, when was this? Like 90, early 90s? These people are on that email early. Email's old. <laughs> Jesus. And I know people would be like, Simon, email's been around since the 1980s. And it's like, well, yeah. But I mean, like, for nerds, for regular people, it was, like, 90s, right? I think I got really... My first email address was probably a late 90s with school, when I got an email address at school. And then we realized you could get your own email address, like a Hotmail or whatever. And then we were, like, it wasn't subject to the school's filtering of emails, so we could send whatever emails we wanted, and then the school filtered Hotmail. And then we quickly worked out a way around that, because obviously we did, because we're bored children. Other colleagues noticed this blossoming relationship, and Kristen would badmouth her husband publicly at work, presumably as a way of justifying herself in their eyes. It's around this time that her poor husband, Dennis, reports that his food started tasting funny. Oh my lord, is she poisoning him? He started telling his friends that his wife wanted him out of the house by Thanksgiving. Some reporters say dead instead of out of the house. He was eventually hospitalized in November of 1995. At Cooley Dickinson, the nearest civilian hospital, he was diagnosed with low potassium and glucose levels. This combined with the funny-tasting food led some to suspect that Kristen had been spiking his food with diuretics. <laughs> Jesus. A week after his release, Kristen approached her husband, claiming that she wasn't happy with the standard of care he'd received at the hospital. She wanted to take some blood, but before that, she needed to flush the vein with saline. Um, I've had my blood taken many, many times in my life, and they've never flushed a vein with saline. That is not something that people do. Anyone who knows anything about medicine knows that this makes no sense at all. And if anyone tries this on you, you should definitely punch them in the face and run away. Anyway, Kristen injected a clear liquid into Glenn's arm, which immediately began to feel cold and painful. He yelled out for her to stop, but she pinned him to the wall with her hip. After this, he lost consciousness. When he came to, he saw his wife apparently flustered, packing up her kit and saying it simply passed out from the sight of the needle. Nothing to worry about happens all the time. The state police suspect that Kristen tried 
to kill him with an injection of potassium. It's important to say at this point, however, that we only have Glenn's word for most of this, that low potassium and glucose levels can just happen through diet, and that neither the police nor the DOJ were inclined to charge Kristen with this attempted murder, so none of it's proven. With all of that said, though, it does seem consistent with the rest of her behavior. I think we're going to finish this episode and be like, it was poison. She was trying to kill him, allegedly. Because I get the feeling, you know, we all know where this is going. She's the angel of death. <laughs> she did this. Ah. He got off lightly, I imagine. By 1995, the year Stanley, Jagger, Dowski, and Henry howden died perot had moved to an apartment in east hampton to be closer to Kristen. she began making claims of domestic abuse at glenn's hand so perot gave her an ultimatum saying she either needed to leave her husband or he'd leave her during this conversation which they've been having at the mount holyoke mall Kristen got up and walked to her public phone and called her husband ending the marriage then and there Perrault later told investigators he was standing close enough to hear her side of the conversation. Kristen moved to an apartment complex near Perrault's place, enlisting Perrault's help to pack up and move her things, which must have been pretty awkward. Yeah, no shit, dude. <laughs> she did not take her children with her. Oh, classy. I mean, not that the women should always take the children, but there should be some discussion and not just abandoning your kids. Come on. A few weeks later, she filed for divorce five days before Christmas. She would later engage in a bitter custody battle, which she would lose. Good. But at this point, she seems to be more concerned with ensuring that James Perrault had a key to her new place. So now, all the impediments to the affair had been removed. They all lived happily ever after and had children and grandchildren and smiled tenderly in remembrance of the turbulence of their youthful days. The end. Well, no. Not quite. We're not even halfway through today's episode. It's going to get real. And by it's going to get real, I mean... This episode is going to get horrific because, once again, it's entitled The Angel of Death. The Investigation There's a fascinating philosophical aspect to periodization where all liminality disappears. Chris, are you using big words on purpose? Periodization? Liminality? I know people are going to be in the comments if there was a poll. Like 80% of people would be like, I know these words, Simon, you small brain. But I, I don't know these words. And it's possible to see the beginnings and endings of events with diamond clarity. We look back 200 years and we can see that the Romantic period begins in 1798, coinciding with the Industrial Revolution, that modernism begins in 1910 after a scientific revolution, and postmodernism in 1950 as a response to the traumas of World War II. It's also neat and clean, the beginnings and endings manifesting as precise, determinate cuts in history. But history's not reality. And from the point of view of actually living in present reality, it's extremely difficult to spot the beginnings and ends of things, and also to actually identify the things themselves. Well, it's fascinating to me anyway, but going by the glazed looks I get from my nearest and dearest when I bring this up, I'm going to have to assume I'm in the minority of one here. I don't know. It's, I mean, I wouldn't say it's fascinating, but it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's always blurry. And then in a history book, you've got to say, like, well, it begins here and it ends there. And they'll always say, like, maybe it began here, like when you go into more depth, but it'd be like generally considered to have begun in 1950 or whatever. Suffice it to say, it's probably difficult to pinpoint an exact time when the investigation into Kristen Gilbert really began. We know that it formally began on the 17th of February 1996, when the DVA Inspector General's Office. I, Department of Veterans Affairs, gonna say, got involved, but the reality is that Kathy Ricks and her friends have been investigating her for some time before this, and even before Kathy went to Walsh and Walt, oh, the two people that she let into her confidence when she thought something fishy was up, she had begun picking over the inventories and death rates by herself in the knowledge that something she knew not what 
was wrong. So, for the sake of telling a coherent story, we need to periodize the career of Kristen Gilbert. There's phase one, where she's working a day shift in the main medical unit for about a year. Then there's phase two, where she moves first to the overnight shift, and then in early 1991, the evening shift in Ward C. And finally, there's phase three, her post-escalation period after she began her affair with James Perrault. In phase two, around 1990 to 1993, when she was swapping shifts in Ward C, the death rate for her shift tripled. Ah, oh, that is a lot of people that she's killing then. After a year when she moved to the evening shift, overnight shift deaths dropped back to their pre-Christian levels, while the evening shift death rate tripled. This is, I mean, I guess this is why Chris was saying he had to look into like circumstantial evidence in the US and stuff. But that is some pretty mad circumstantial evidence right there. This was noticed at the time, and she was given the nickname The Angel of Death. If your nurse has the nickname The Angel of Death, ask for a different nurse. If you're just in the hospital, it's like, ah, it's The Angel of Death. Ah, ah, I'll be like, I'm transferring. Thank you very much. Different hospital, please. <laughs> Now, it's worth pointing out that this isn't unusual. There are facilities all over the world, especially nursing homes, where there are unlucky staff members who bear this moniker. Still, I'll be like, no, 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 no. What's your doctor's nickname? We call him the Angel of Death. Ah! And there's a big overlap between many VA hospitals and nursing homes, the Leeds VA being one of these. I personally know two people who've had this nickname and their time as nurses. The fact is, deaths can switch from clumped to distributed and then back again for no reason at all. Ah, oh, man, this, still make, this would still make me so nervous. Some types of death are more likely to occur at certain points in the circadian rhythm and therefore at certain times of day. Sometimes, as was the case with one of my friends, an excess of competence can lead a nurse or doctor to being present at more deaths simply because they're the ones you call when the chips are down. Yeah, that's fair. That does make sense. That's just like how the statistics would work. There's a big difference between an anecdotally observed tendency and the abstract reality of statistics, which I know we're all still excited about getting into later. So it was years before the climbing death rate, combined with other strange occurrences, which turns the vigilant Kathy Ricks onto Kristen Gilbert. We have to remember at this time, Kristen was an A++ nurse, highly popular with her colleagues, possessed of glowing proficiency reports, and apparently ridiculously good-looking to boot. By the time, oh, we reach phase three of her career, her post-Peralt escalation cracks are beginning to appear. We already know about the deaths of poor Stan Jadadowski and Henry Houghton, but one thing I didn't mention was an item of hospital policy. Whenever there was a cardiac emergency, the on-duty hospital police officer was required to attend and attempt CPR. What? <laughs> what? 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 Where there was a cardiac let me just read that again. When there was a cardiac emergency, the on-duty hospital police officer was required to attend and attempt CPR. Why would you have the police officer do that? That'd be like you're in the hospital, like in the hospital, the security guard comes by and it's like, Do you want me to do that CPR, Doc? And the doctor's like, Yeah, it's in the rules, you have to. I know I'm probably better at this being a doctor and all, but we've got to let you have a crack at it, John. Sorry. That is very weird. Which means that whenever there was a code on one of Kristen's shifts, Perot would be the first officer in attendance. It's around this time, 1995, that staff begin chattering about the sharp increase in cardiac emergencies and deaths on the ward. It's also around this time that they start noticing strange dynamics between Gilbert and Perot. They'll frequently be the last to leave their post-shift drinking sessions at the VFW, as if they're waiting to be alone. Some staff report that the two of them are exchanging flirtatious looks and smiles as they work to save the lives of patients who are coding. One nurse reports seeing Gilbert and Perot literally playing footsie while Perot administers CPR to the patients. That is a bit weird, dude. 
The 88 chain it's still weird that the security guard's doing CPR. There's got to be a reason for that, right? But it's really weird. The 88 unaccounted for doses of epinephrine are discovered around this time, and the hospital authorities change their procedures around the handling of drugs and send out a circular to other VA hospitals suggesting that they do the same. Okay, good. What are you doing? I doubt this document has aged well in the meantime. Why? I don't get it. They should also do this like they're trying to tighten their procedures. That sounds like a good thing. They've realized something's wrong. Am I missing something? Probably. In the meantime, Kathy Ricks and her colleagues are starting to put two and two together, and what they're coming up with is appalling. Given all the available facts, the best theory is that Kristen Gilbert is deliberately overdosing patients on epinephrine and seems to be doing so in order to show off in front of her new boyfriends. Holy shit. That she's using the drug to instigate codes which will bring him running to her so that he can impress her with the efforts she's making to save the patients. Now think about that in the context of your own workplace. How willing would you be to believe that something like this was actually happening? Yeah, I find it unbelievable. I'll be like, nah, nah, nah. And even if you have some suspicion, you'll be like, this is too crazy. I can't go forward with that. But no one can make an accusation like this. <laughs> That's just mad. we got to find the real reason behind this. And let's say further that your prime suspect is one of the most popular people in the office and personally known to you as someone who goes out of their way to perform good deeds and acts of kindness. What would you need before you went to the police and told them that someone you'd been working with for years might be killing people for insane reasons and by invisible means? Well, let's see what Kathy Ricks needed. I think you'd need a lot. Because also, you'll go to the police with this and they'll be like, bro, this is just circumstantial. What do you want us to do? Go there and arrest her? It's like there's no serious evidence. Like, no matter what the stats say, they could just be stats. It's super circumstantial. And you must know this. You could be like, if I was in her position, I'd be like, I need more and I'm going to secretly gather this information because I know if I go to the police, it's not going to happen and I need something more tangible. I think. I, I feel like that's what... Because she also brought those other two people into her confidence, right? To figure this out more. And I think this is a totally fine course of action. It's what I would do in the same situation. A few months after filing for divorce from her husband, Glenn, Kristen Gilbert was on duty in the Ward C ICU, which housed only one patient, Kenneth Cutting, a 41-year-old army veteran who was blind and immobilized by multiple sclerosis. Ken Cutting, amiable and chatty with the staff despite his condition, was a popular patient. Early in her shift, Gilbert went to her supervising doctor saying that Ken wasn't doing so well and asking if she might be able to go home early if he died. What? This might strike as an unusual conversation, but it's actually pretty commonplace and wouldn't have raised any alarm bells. Okay, yeah. I guess, like, to us from the outside, it's like, holy shit, that's morbid. But in hospitals where people die all the time, they get super desensitized to death. Like, people do. 35 minutes after this grim little professional chat, a code blue was called and Kenneth Cutting died of a massive heart attack. Two hours after this, Kristen Gilbert checked out of work to meet James Brock for a date. Two weeks after this, Edward Squara has, was admitted to the Ward C ICU. Mr. Squara was a 69-year-old World War II Army veteran who was in and out of hospitals for chronic alcoholism. He was a very ill man, and to a large extent it seemed that his care was palliative in nature. Nurse Kathy Riggs was on duty when Mr. Squara first came in, but Kristen Gilbert was the only nurse in attendance when he eventually coded and died of a massive heart attack. Now, this death wouldn't have been remarkable if suspicions hadn't already been aroused. Mr. Squara was already suffering from severe cardiac issues when he was admitted, but Kathy Riggs, already disturbed by the unexplained deaths on Gilbert's watch and by their alarming increase in frequency, had taken a careful drug inventory of all the medicine cabinets, including the ward CICU. Before Mr. Squire's death, three ampules of epinephrine had been present in the ICU medicine cabinets. After the code, they were missing. 
this is exactly the sort of evidence that she should be gathering and good for her because this is what's going down. Kathy Riggs then went to the sharps or needle disposal bin in the ICU and found three broken ampules in there. This is a serious no-no. When drugs are administered, the packages need to be preserved until they can be recorded and accounted for. It's really very negligent to simply toss them in a bin and highly suspicious to put them in a bin that no sane person would put their hand into. Yeah, this is like... How, if that happened once... That should, if that is missing, it should absolutely be recorded, and there should be people in hospitals who track this shit down and work out what's going on and where those are and how it went missing, and then punish or set up a system so that it can't happen again. Because I don't know. Obviously, I feel like this could have just, if this Kathy Ricks woman wasn't hunting down this evidence, I'm sure this happened before, and it would just have happened again if she wasn't looking for it. Enough was enough, and Kathy Riggs, John Walsh, and Renee Walsh went through their chain of command to report their findings. The case was assigned to a special agent with the Office of the Inspector General for Veterans Affairs, a trim, square-jawed man with a blonde flat top and a moustache called Stephen Plant. In the course of researching this piece, I watched a made-for-TV documentary on the case made shortly after Gilbert's trial. Amusingly, the man who played Agent Plant in the reenactments was an overweight middle-aged man with a brown moustache, the sort of actor who'd be typecast as a world-weary cop. It was funny to see the actual Steve Plant looking like a chipper G.I. Joe being cut in for pieces to camera immediately after the actor playing him had just shambled wearily through a dramatization sequence. That sounds like some lazy casting for your documentary, guys. Agent Planty, by his own account, was used to investigating contract fraud and negligence, the crimes most typical in the VA, began his investigation based on the very reluctant and hesitant testimony of these three nurses. They themselves say the whole thing was unthinkable and that they were hoping the investigation would reveal some of the series of mistakes, accidents, or misunderstandings. They suspected murder but hope like hell it wasn't. Despite his lack of expertise in homicides, Agent Plant conducted a thorough and stellar investigation. He began, as he should have, with an open mind and with every single staff member in process in the hospital as a target. This very quickly narrowed into an investigation with one target, Kristen Gilbert. At this point, he called the US state attorney, William Welch II, and told him they had a potential serial murder on their hands. Welch responded with extreme skepticism, but knew of Agent Plate, and somewhat refreshingly for law enforcement featured on Casual Criminalist, he also knew his job. He assigned a team of state police to the investigation, with Massachusetts State Trooper Kevin Murphy in the lead, chosen for his experience in homicide investigations. Together, they began poring over hospital records, going back over the original findings of Plant's inquiry, and following the pathways that they led to. Trooper Murphy recalls this phase of the investigation fondly. In interviews, he would say that it wasn't like any ordinary murder investigation, but was more like a white-collar crime inquiry with an emphasis on technical forensics, records, and documentation. Yeah, because that's what they're kind of... like. A lot of this is just going to be over... Because it's going down in such an environment where there are lots of records, allegedly, and stuff like that. So, kind of interesting. Which might explain why Agent Plant did such a good job. By this time, Kristen Gilbert became aware of the investigation, tipped off, investigators believe, by Perrault. She claimed a mentally disturbed patient twisted her arm and injured her shoulder and applied for sick leave. The investigators, increasingly convinced that she was their perpetrator, saw this as a great outcome as it removed her patients from harm's way and recommended that management let her go on leave. In the meantime, Agent Plant interviewed her, and her guarded, defensive manner deepened his suspicions even further. Investigators also zeroed in on Perot, having found out about their relationship and found him to be mostly cooperative but guarded when it came to questions about Kristen, as if he were 
interested in protecting her. By June of 1996, well, yeah, of course he'd be interested in protecting her. They're in a relationship. If she's a murderer, you'd be like, <laughs> By June of 1996, however, Kristen Gilbert was falling apart. She was deliberately overdosing on drugs and getting checked into mental institutions, and on one occasion she called Parole and told him to quote, You wanna know? Fine. I killed all those guys. Parole had been trying to withdraw from his relationship with her during the investigation. Had already been on the bunny boiler side of Kristen by this time. She had harassed, stalked, and manipulated him, and by the time she made this call, he already had a restraining order on her. After this phone call, Perrault went straight to the cops, who told him that he had to pick a side, and that if he chose hers, he would no longer have a job, much less any hope of becoming a cop. Perrault finally threw in a 100% with the investigation and agreed to go before a grand jury and testify. It seems like his decision was kind of already made up when he got a restraining order against her, to be honest. Like, that's fairly heavy. It's like you've ended your relationship and a restraining order has been required. That's some heavy shit right there. Hearing about this, Gilbert blocked him in his driveway and pleaded with him not to go. When she could have persuaded him, she followed him there and deflated his tires. On future occasions when he testified, Perot would come back to find his car had been keyed or his windscreen spray-painted. Bombs, damn lies, and statistics. While all of this was happening, the Daily Hampshire Gazette broke the story about the inquiry into the VA deaths without naming the suspect. A few weeks later, the DOJ confirmed that a grand jury had been convened. Ken Gilbert, who'd been musing on the serious misgivings that he had about his now ex-wife, asked Murphy and Plant to search his house, especially a cabinet which belonged to Kristen and which she'd left behind. What does he think is in that cabinet that he doesn't want to get his fingerprints on? He's like, there is a suspicious cabinet in my house that my potentially murderous ex-girlfriend had. I don't want to go in there. But I just think you guys should go check it out. You can come in, just check it out, it's cool. In it, they found the Handbook of Poisons. Not by itself suspicious in possession of a nurse, but it had been dog-eared pages about epinephrine. Oh my god. One, what are you doing? You've broken up with your boyfriend and you've left your murder manual in his house and you're not worried about this. You don't want to go get that back or some shit. That seems absolutely insane. Look, don't earmark pages about poisons. Don't take notes about how you're killing people. That's crazy. In the meantime, Gilbert's behavior became increasingly off the chain. She had retained her own private investigators, and when her friends and colleagues refused to cooperate with them as they did with the police, she lashed out at them furiously. She repeatedly harassed Glenn Gilbert, threatening him, telling him that he didn't have to cooperate with authorities, and at one stage rocking up to his house and attempting to attack him with a set of car keys. By September of that year, with the walls closing in and incidentally the death of Kristen's grandmother, Kristen Gilbert went to a toy store and bought a device called a Talk Girl. Girl Junior at Toys R Us and packets of Energizer batteries at Thrifty Drugstore with both her personal credit card. What is this? Talk Girl Junior. Is this some like sort of voice changing weird? What is she going to do with this? I don't even know if it is that. The Talk Girl Junior is a toy which changes the playback speed of your voice recordings, making a woman's voice sound like a man and vice versa. Boom, got it right. Gilbert called her husband using. Star 67 to disguise her number. Oh, I remember this. There was. Oh, there was. It wasn't Star 67. There was a. There was another British thing number that you could put in before dialing to make it come up as a private number. As well as the toy to disguise her voice and left a message on his answer machine saying, I just want to say goodbye for the last time. 
goodbye. Later that same day, September the 27th, at 17.11 hours to be precise, she called the security desk at the VA hospital where James Perot was on duty and phoned in a bomb threat with the stated motive of justice for the veterans of the Persian Gulf War who'd been exposed to chemical weapons. She said that there were three devices and they had two hours to evacuate the veterans. She called multiple times over the next two hours. The ward was evacuated and searched, but no devices were found. Now, this whole thing is nuts as reading the transcripts it seems she's simultaneously abusing them and trying to curry favor by advocating a cause which she knew perot a gulf war veteran himself would be sympathetic to or while talking in a disguised voice so that in theory perot wouldn't even know it was her not to mention the fact that she somehow thought she'd be able to derail the investigation this way and that she apparently faked a bomb threat in the past how does she think this is gonna work this is like off the rails over the next few days, she made threatening calls to Glenn Gilbert, the VA front desk, and Perot. Once at the VFW at a time when only someone who knew him would know he'd be there, and once when she attempted to add a southern accent to the voice alteration. In the meantime, she'd also bought a talk boy junior to go with a talk girl, presumably in some cockamamie attempts to cover her tracks. She told the store assistant that the toys were for her nephews. As flatly stated in the case file, quote, Gilbert does not have any nephews. Also, the calls to the security desk only happens when Perot was on shift, so Perot met with investigators and agreed to call Kristen from the desk to tell her he'd be on duty from 5 to 7 that evening. <laughs> really? Please don't tell her. She's going to fall for this, isn't she? They then put Kristen under surveillance, which meant, as this isn't the movies, that trooper Kevin Murphy himself had to stake out her apartment. Shortly after, Kristen Gilbert was observed making a call from a public phone booth near the Tasty Tom ice cream parlor, and her index fingerprint was lifted from the handset. <laughs> like, guys, come on. Perot confirmed that this was the call he received, an anonymous threatening caller with a disguised voice. These were sufficient grounds to search Kristen's apartment where they found the Talkboy Jr., among other things, and Kristen Gilbert was indicted for the felony charge of falsely phoning a bomb threat to a federal institution. Gilbert, that's going to get you in prison, right? That's, that's, that's a fairly serious crime right there, even if there's no bomb. You can't just phone up, you can't just phone up a federal institution and say, put a bomb in your building. That is, you, you are going to get all sorts of trouble, like prison trouble. Gilbert was admitted to a mental hospital and then released into the custody of her parents in Setorkit, NY, before standing trial and being in prison for 15 months. That seems that seems reasonable. Like for phoning in a bomb threat, fifteen months. I feel like yeah, a couple of years would have been my guess. In the meantime, the homicide investigation continued, with the bodies of Edward Squire and Stanley Jodowski being exhumed. Investigators were also interviewing victims' families, and poor Christine DeKert and Julia Houdin, Henry Houdin's sister and mother, had their wounds reopened by the discovery that their Henry had likely been murdered and they'd need to testify before a grand jury at a trial. Along with the wealth of circumstantial evidence, investigators discovered that eye tissue samples could be used to determine high epinephrine levels. There is a valve in the eye which spasms after death, trapping fluid in the eyeball, and thus preserving substances present in the body. Wow. Science is cool. On top of this, Edward Squire's body contained completely inexplicable traces of ketamine. U.S. Attorney Welch decided it was time to call another grand jury. Now, for those that aren't aware, a grand jury is a panel of... Si I don't know what a grand jury is, actually. This is going to be fun. A grand jury is a panel of citizens assembled by a prosecutor to decide if there's sufficient evidence to proceed with an indictment. Wow. So it's kind of like before you go and see the regular jury. Grand jury to me sounds like something way more serious. Like, we're going to get you in front of the grand jury. Be like, oh my God, that's not the regular jury. That's even more, more like intense. 
but it's like just a pre-jury jury. That's interesting. They're not required to determine innocence or guilt, but rather weigh evidence to see if there's grounds to lay charges. In the UK and Australia, this hearing is usually done by a magistrate. In the USA, it's a citizen jury. Assistant, you know, is probably why I don't know about it, because in the UK, the, um... I thought the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, made decisions on whether they wanted to go forward with a case but I, I, it's been a long time. Assistant United States Attorney William Welch, having been convinced by the findings of Murphy and Plant, had convened a grand jury, but was faced with the problem of a distinct lack of smoking gun. Yet all of this stuff is like, there's so much circumstantial evidence, but it is all circumstantial. This presents a twofold problem, the first being that in jury trials, the only real slam dunks are eyewitnesses and forensic evidence. Nobody had ever seen Gilbert actually administer fatal overdoses, and there was no real hope of finding convincing forensic evidence as the substance used to kill naturally occurs in the body and metabolizes really quickly. At the time, there was no forensically conclusive way to determine epinephrine toxicity post-mortem, eyeball vitreous fluid notwithstanding. The other problem is the circumstantial evidence is much easier to knock out of consideration in a trial by motions to strike or exclude, so Welch was faced with the probability that a significant portion of the evidence gathered might be of no use to him at trial. Welch's strategy to overcome this was to create what he called, quote, a compelling wall of guilt. Basically, he wanted to overwhelm the court with incriminating facts, testimonies, and statistics. But to even get there in the first place, he needed to convince the grand jury that there was a case to answer. For this, Welch turned to Dr. Stephen Garbeck of the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And now, dear viewers and listeners, is where we get to the intensely thrilling discussion of conditional probability, which I know we've all been waiting for. I love this. I know, I know Chris is like, it's boring, and I'm going to try and make it interesting, but I love these like weird statistical things and how it all works. I find it fascinating. For this section, I'm indebted to some of my colleagues, as well as the work of George Cobb and Stephen Gerbach, both of whom presented conflicting arguments on the admissibility of statistical evidence to Christine Gilbert's trial, and who later co-authored a paper describing their findings and the outcome. Now, don't panic. I don't intend to inundate you with hypothesis testing and stats, but it's important to get this right. A great many online sources talk about this case as an example of maths catching a serial killer, and this is both misleading and disrespectful to the people who actually did catcher, namely Kathy Ricks, Stephen Waltz, and Rennie Walsh, in combination with Trooper Murphy and Agent Plant. It wasn't maths, it was people. People who took very seriously their duty to preserve life, and other people who took equally seriously their duty to investigate wrongdoing. The role of statistics and hypothesis testing here was a part of a complex structure of evidence designed to convince a grand jury to indict. Firstly, Dr. Gelbach presented a graph of deaths on the ward from 1988 through 97 inclusive. The death stats were divided across shifts, being night, day, and evening. The data from 1988 shows normal distribution of deaths, but by 1989 it starts spiking. In 1990, the night shift showed far more deaths than the other, and then for 91 through 95, the evening shift was consistently the most fatal, year in, year out, by a long way. Kristen Gill was on the night shift in 1990, and then the evening shift every year after that until she went on leave in 1996. And I'm looking at the graph now. I'm sure Jen will put it on screen now. And it's like, and then 96 rolls around. And it's like the deaths just drop altogether. And it's like, come on now. Come on now. 
Now that the correlation between Gilbert and elevated death levels have been shown, Gelbach went on to talk about p-values, which is just fancy pants talk for probability. First, we begin with a hypothesis, namely that if we flip a coin, there's a 50-50% chance of it coming up heads. So let's say we flip a coin 10 times and come up with 6 heads. We compute this against our hypothesis and come up with the answer that 6 heads in 10 flips has a p-value of 0.38 as opposed to the 0.5 in our hypothesis. Or rather, Dr. Galbach does. I don't do that kind of math. So next question is, what number of heads would lead us to question our hypothesis? Or, to put that another way, how many times do we have to come up heads for us to begin thinking that there's something wrong with the coin or that something other than chance is affecting the results? Oh, this is... I love all this shit. This is so interesting because I know exactly where this is going. We're probably going to get some, like, equivalent for the coin toss and it's going to be, like, so high that you're like, there is no way that that coin is not rigged. Turns out, for a p-value to be sufficiently low to constitute what's called a scientific surprise, you'd need to get 9 heads from 10 flips. From here, Galbach went on to do a focused study of deaths in the 18 months leading up to Kristen Gilbert going on leave. Over these 547 days, there were 1,641 shifts. 74 of these shifts had at least one death. A simple calculation of 74 over 1,641 gives us a value of 4.5%. So over this sample, we'd expect four and a half shifts out of every hundred to have a death, and that's our hypothesis. What we next do is calculate conditional probability. The condition here is that Gilbert was on a shift, so the statement would be the probability of a death given that Gilbert is on a shift. Gilbert worked 257 shifts in that period, of which 40 had at least one death, which gives us 40 over 257, or 15.5%. Once this has been established, we need to perform an independence test to determine whether the probability of death is related to Gilbert being on shift. So if we say the probability is P, death is D, and Gilbert being on shift is G, we get some statements like this. P D parenthesis is 0.045, meaning that the overall probability of death is 4.5%, and P parenthesis D, given that G is 0.155, meaning the probability of death, given that Gilbert is on shift, is 15.5%. The variance between these two P values is high enough that Gilbert being on shift must obviously be related to the increase in death rate, and the P value for this relationship, as tested against the hypothesis, works out at 1 in 100 million. I really 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 hope like i followed i'd say 70 percent of that but it was a little bit complex and i really hope that when they were telling this grand jury that that the statistician broke it down for small brain people like me because i'd be like oh, i got lost i got lost i'm sorry i'm sorry mr scientist but fortunately they come up with a really nice thing and this is this which means that there's only a 1 in 100 million probability that the relationship between Gil being on shift and the higher death rate is pure chance. 1 in a 100 million. Now, it's very important to point out that this does not prove Kristen Gilbert's guilt. What it did do at the time was contribute to a range of evidence which convinced the grand jury that there was sufficient cause to indict her for murder, as among other things, the increased death rate could not just be pure coincidence. The statistical evidence was not admitted at the actual trial, as George Cobb of Mount Holyoke College successfully argued that it was likely to be radically misinterpreted by the jury, owing to something called the prosecutor's fallacy. Basically, it is perfectly valid to state that the smallness of the p-value means that it is impossible that the increased death rate is owing to pure chance. It is also valid to state that it is impossible that the increase in death rate is unrelated to Kristen Gilbert. But what is not valid to state is that this p-value makes it impossible that Kristen Gilbert is innocent. Yeah, I understand why they didn't have that at trial. It's just like super circumstantial and it's statistics and 
there's other stuff at play here I mean the other stuff at play here I think is that she's murdering people but there's other things too that could be possibly in my opinion quite unlikely affecting this stuff this just isn't true with reference to the evidence at hand as chance is the only factor among a range of possible factors which have been ruled out so speaking of valid statements it is not valid to state that in this case math caught a serial killer what's probably the real valid statement in this case is that math helps bring a serial killer to trial i'm sorry to go so deep on the numbers but i've seen this explained either incorrectly or incompetently so many times in researching this piece that i felt compelled to set it straight trial and wrap up the trial went from the 23rd of november 2000 to the 20th of january 2001 it contained over 70 witnesses and in excess of 200 pieces of evidence in accordance with welch's strategy of presenting a compelling wall of guilt prosecutors sought the death penalty in this case while massachusetts hasn't had a death penalty for some time the va is federal jurisdiction thus the federal prosecution and the application for a federal death penalty i don't think she's going to get the death penalty for this i think that's a bit of a stretch i mean she's clearly a murdering serial killer and stuff but i guess that's the thing i'm like well you know it's all circumstantial evidence but that doesn't matter once they've established guilt setting the punishment is separate to that because we've that means you've accepted all the circumstantial evidence so maybe she will get the death penalty i don't think so though quite a bit of evidence was excluded from the trial including prejudicial staff around the unproven allegations of her attempted murder of her ex-husband and some stuff related to the bomb threats glenn gilbert and james perrault both testified that she had confessed to the murders but gilbert's lawyers argued that this was all part of a pattern of stress-induced disturbed behavior which had been brought on by the investigation her shoulder injury and her grandmother's death basically the same defense she'd used for the bomb threat trial judge ponsor aware of the complexity of the trial advised all the participants that this would be a marathon and not a sprint and told counsel for both sides they should take regular exercise and generally look after themselves there was a huge amount of technical evidence with both sides producing experts testifying on the effects of epinephrine doctors testified about the victims especially those who had been physically healthy leading up to their sudden deaths or who had conditions which wouldn't typically lead to a heart attack nurses testified to Kristen gilbert's suspicious and increasingly erratic behavior one nurse testified that gilbert had offered her an ampule of epinephrine from her pocket when she'd complained of asthma unfortunately for the prosecution the tissue samples that so painstakingly and innovatively collected turned out to be inconclusive and were stricken the whole issue of epinephrine became contentious throughout the trial especially as some of the victims had actually been prescribed the drugs as part of unsuccessful attempts to revive them at one point dr michael baden a forensic pathologist misspoke and corrected himself saying that he had a senile moment rather than a senior moment the defense tried to use this to have his testimony stricken <laughs> because he used the wrong word come on give him a break apart from the technical and circumstantial evidence the prosecution made heavy use of pathos they showed pictures of the victims made emotional statements about fallen heroes of the usa and closed with a photo montage of the victims with their families and their uniforms but what they stressed the most apart from the circumstantial evidence was Kristen gilbert's character the prosecution led with the theory that gilbert was killing these patients for the sole purpose of impressing her boyfriend with her nursing skills as she put on an act of attempting to save them the prosecutor argued that this was a ploy to blind her new boyfriend who was three years younger than her more tightly to her this sounds preposterous in isolation perhaps not to the hard and true crime aficionados of the casual criminalist of course we've really heard it all on this channel but to a group of 12 ordinary decent people 
This must have seemed truly insane. It certainly did to her colleagues. And on the other side, Gilbert's defense argued that she was the target of malicious professional jealousy, that the evidence against her had either been fabricated or blown out of all proportion by her colleagues. They argued that the only reason Gilbert had been present at so many deaths was because she was acknowledged as one of the best and most able nurses in the hospital, and that she'd been naturally called to more than her fair share of code blues. Yeah, but that doesn't explain why there are more code blues when you're on the shift, does it? All of this is to say that the trial was hard fought, and at the end, the judge took the extraordinary step of telling the jury that they could, if they chose, also deliver verdicts of second-degree murder if they thought this more appropriate. This indicates that, as solid as the circumstantial evidence might seem to us, in a courtroom and against a good defense team, it was far from a slam dunk. And from a certain point of view, it could be argued that intent to murder wasn't satisfactorily proven by the prosecution in each case. The jury took 12 days to deliberate, after which they found Kristen Gilbert guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder. Twelve days is an unusually long time for a guilty verdict, and this was a majority of ten not a unanimous one. And I can see why. Over the course of writing this piece, I've basically been laying out the prosecution's case. Presented as an unbroken logical narrative, the evidence accumulates nicely, and it seems obvious that Kristen Gilbert is guilty. But in a trial format with nothing but circumstantial evidence and counter-arguments of the defense, I can see how doubt would creep in. I personally don't think this is reasonable doubt, and ultimately, the jury agreed, but there is still a microscopically tiny part of my mind which wonders if Kristen Gilbert was actually guilty. Not because I think she's innocent, of course, it's just a testament to the power of solid forensic or eyewitness evidence. Well, the power of forensic evidence, yes, eyewitness evidence in my opinion, maybe. There's been plenty of times on Casual Criminals where eyewitness testimony has been like super unreliable. Um, but I think it's also a testament to the weakness of circumstantial evidence and the mountain that has to be climbed if that's all you've got to go on. In any event, Kristen Gilbert was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, plus 20 years for the murder of Stanley Jadowski, Henry Hooten, Kenneth Cutting, and Edward Squire. She is currently serving a sentence in federal prison in Fort Worth, Texas. Investigators chose these four murders as they had the most impressive documentation attached to them, but they believe she may have hurt and killed many more. As to how many people Kristen Gilbert actually killed, estimates vary from 30 to 80, with 30 odd being the most plausible figure, as far as I can tell. Dismembered Appendices 1. In sentencing, the jury had the option to recommend the death penalty. The prosecution argued that her bomb threats and past behaviors were aggravating factors, as were the profile of her victims. The defense cited mitigating factors focusing on the welfare of her two children. Gilbert's father also personally begged the jury not to sentence her to death. After two days of deliberation, they acted to recommend life imprisonment. If they had decided on the death penalty, Gilbert would, ironically, been executed by lethal injection. Number two, Gilbert appeals, applying for a new trial almost immediately after the verdict. She dropped this bill in 2003 when a Supreme Court decision made it possible that a new trial would once again expose her to the death penalty. Number three, Gilbert was eventually diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which resolves the problem of how such a clearly intelligent and competent person could have behaved so stupidly. A friend of mine who used to work in online child protection explains that drug dealers and gun runners were harder to catch than pedophiles, as when they didn't like something, they'd just break off and go elsewhere, as it was only money. With the pedophiles, though, they were acting on their compulsions and were more likely to take risks. I'm not saying Gil was a pedophile, of course, but it does seem the compulsions caused by her mental illness might explain some of her wackier behavior, especially once the investigation started. Totally agree. Like, she was making some crazy mistakes, 
and not like um, crazy like mentally ill crazy she was just making some big mistakes and i think that is down to that she wasn't you know she had she had issues number four for those of you who might be thinking a talkboy junior might be a more cost-effective way to disguise your voice you should know that when they recorded the calls and played them back at different speeds they basically got gilbert's voice on claire so i'm afraid we're all stuck with still spending thousands of dollars at those spy shops that we all definitely don't use <laughs> wait i've never bought anything at a spy shop um like <laughs> What were you for spy shops, Chris? Anyway, uh, this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for watching or listening. It goes out as the YouTube video and, of course, as a podcast as well. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.